Alright, last week we began a new study at Grace Community Church through the letter of Colossians. And we're picking up where we left off. And I'm excited to jump right in this morning. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer. And let's ask God to make this time effective in our life. Father, we come to you this morning. And we confess our inabilities, Lord, that we gather together as a weak people in and of ourselves. We are unable to do anything spiritual, anything of profit, unless you help us. And so that's our prayer, God. We want to meet with you. We want to be taught your word, Lord. We want to be encouraged. And we believe that we belong to you, God. And we believe that you are faithful. God, we believe your promises to us. And so we ask you to be good to us this morning. And we ask you to be faithful to us, Lord. Encourage us in the gospel today, Lord. Feed your family with bread from heaven. Make your word effective in our life this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, before we get in our passage in Colossians chapter 1, I want you to turn one page to the right in your Bible. And I want to read a verse from Colossians chapter 2. I'll start in verse 1. I want to mention this before we get to our text this morning. Colossians chapter 2 verse 1 says this. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged. Stop. I want to... I want to say something to us as a local church from this verse. But before I do that, I want to show you some dissimilarities and some similarities from that verse to our current situation. I want you to catch what's going on here. A man of God is in turmoil. He is struggling. He has an inner conflict. You see that. Next, that inner conflict is for a group of people, a group of churches that he has never seen. You imagine that? You ever felt anything like that? This is not a burden for your closest. This is a burden and a conflict for a group of Christians that you have never seen before. And he's in turmoil and he's in struggle. That this group of Christians that, listen, their hearts may be encouraged. That's how important it is for them. That their hearts may be encouraged. So, start with dissimilarities. Okay? In no way am I saying that I'm anything like the Apostle Paul in this verse. I gladly confess that I am not. I am not a writer of Scripture. Amen? I am not the Apostle to the Gentiles. Gladly so. Nothing in my life uh, even begins to, to move in that direction. On that. Second, my relationship with you as a local church is not like what he described. I see your face every single week. I know who you are. Okay? So there's some dissimilarities there, but I want to say this. As a shepherd that God has placed in your life, I know what this feels like. This turmoil and this struggle that your hearts would be encouraged. And I just want to tell you this. I long for this for you. Okay? For myself and for you. As your brother in Christ, I want you encouraged in the gospel. Ten million times more than I want you jumping through religious hoops and kicking cans down the street and moving forward with religious duties. I want you happy in Jesus. I want you satisfied in your Savior. I want you happy in the gospel. I want you so happy in the gospel that you're daydreaming about what Jesus has done in your life throughout the week. I long for this in your life. I want to see God take God the Holy Spirit move in this church. And I want to see Him take gospel coldness out of all of us. Gospel indifference. Places in our life that, aren't, that, that need encouragement. I want to see the Holy Spirit take those things from you and restore to you the joy of your salvation. I long for that. And every single Christian in the room, you're no different. You're hearing those things. You're like, I, I long for that too. God, do that in this church. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. And so I say that. 
that your hearts may be encouraged. That's what contact with this letter is supposed to be doing in your life. That's what, that's what we can ask God for week in and week out as we move through this letter. That you would receive something from heaven that was an encouragement to you. That was a real spiritual encouragement to you. Now, as we're working through the very beginnings of this letter, there is something very unique about the first part of New Testament letters that is uniquely suited to give you that encouragement. Okay? I want to talk to you about this. We've, we've said this before, but all of you have not heard this. Almost every letter in the New Testament starts out with a heavy dose of what Jesus has done for you instead of what you should be doing for Jesus. Do you catch that? Almost every New Testament letter reminds Christians what God has done for you in Christ. And it camps out there. Why? Because God wants Christians happy in the gospel. He wants you remembering vividly what Jesus has done for you. Colossians is no different. So we have in these opening verses and, and really in the first half of this letter, we have a heavy dose of done. This is done. Wake up to what happened in your life and what Jesus has done for you. And it's, and it's interesting that God the Holy Spirit puts it in that order. The dones in Christianity come before the dues. The finished work of Christ precedes your work for Jesus Christ. You need to be encouraged. Encouraged. And so these opening verses of these letters, we're tempted to just read past these things. Very quickly to get to the meat of what's going on in Ephesians or Romans or Colossians. Okay? But what we're doing is we're slowing way down and we want to receive from God that encouragement. We want to be reminded week in and week out of what God has done in our life. And so these opening verses are uniquely suited for that. Uniquely suited for that. Paul is drawing their attention to their conversion. And we want to slow down and we, will, we want to consider our conversion very slowly as we walk through these verses. We want to linger over what God has done for us. So what, we, what do we see here? Last week we covered what is authentic conversion. And what Paul's doing to these Colossian Christians and through this inspired word to us is he's reminding them that they have received authentic Christian conversion. We covered that last week. He wants these Christians to know that the real thing has happened to them. Not some cheap imitation that somebody has more than you. The real thing happened to you. We covered that last week. This week, once he solidifies that that has actually happened in their life, he begins to worship and to praise God. And he wants to call this church into worshiping and thanking God for conversion. And that's where we're headed today. We're going to slow down and linger over what God has done in our life. And that's where we're going. In the verses immediately following this, he wants these Colossians to know not only had they received genuine conversion, they had the real gospel. That gospel that Epaphras brought to them, it's not a second class gospel. It's the real gospel, the power of God. They have received authentic Christianity. They have the real thing. They're not in need. So this is what we're considering as we move through these opening texts the next few weeks. I want us to walk out of this place considering our conversion. Considering what God has done in our life and responding appropriately. That's where we're headed this morning. Let's look at our text in Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. We're going to stop there and pick up in the middle of five next week. But I want to cover this passage this morning under these three questions. Okay. The first is this. How can we know that we have been converted? 
Question number one. Question number two. Whose work is conversion? What I mean by that is who gets the credit for it? And then number three. What is the proper response to conversion? We're going to move through this text as we answer those three questions. And so here's what we did last week. We defined the nature of conversion. What is it? How do you define what it means to become a Christian? And what those opening two verses that we blow straight past, usually when we read, they're, they're pregnant with, with gospel power. They remind us what happened to us when we became Christians. It's powerful, transforming, regeneration language is what we saw. So let me review this really quick. In conversion, first two verses, we saw last week that sinners become holy ones. Their status is changed before God. God saw them as sinners, but through the work of the gospel, God now sees them as holy ones. This is a work of grace. That God performs in every Christian. In addition to this, conversion was described as rebellious ones. Those who are enemies of God being healed morally. And they become the faithful ones. The faithful one. God, God gives them a new heart. And a, and, a, and a new disposition through the new birth. Through regeneration. This is what it means to become a Christian. You can't be a Christian without these things. And lastly, we said this. That in conversion... We are united to Jesus Christ. And what he was drawing our attention to there is that we lived and moved in this world in Adam. We were dead because we were joined to Adam the sinner. By God's grace and through conversion, God broke Adam's power in our life. He snapped away our union with Adam and he joined us to Jesus. Union to Jesus Christ. And Rod mentioned this earlier. Jesus' riches in that union become ours. What is His? Outside of His deity becomes ours. Because we're in Him. And we are forever and unchangeably in Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. So the question we're starting with today is, yeah, but how do I know that that has really happened to me? How do I know that that powerful, transforming conversion has really Happened to me. And I want you to notice in our passage that Paul draws attention to three words. To three words. We're going to call them Christian graces. Okay? And those three words are faith, love, and hope. Other places in the New Testament use these words. Some people call it a Christian triad. These words describe just genuine Christian experience. This is what it's like to be a genuine Christian. You got faith, you got hope, and you got love. Sometimes only the words faith and love show up. Other times you have all three. And in our passage today, you have these three words, and they're going to serve us this morning as marks of authentic conversion. This is how you can know that those things that we mentioned last week have happened to you. They are evidences. That God has performed a powerful work in the soul of a man or a woman. And so let's quickly move through these this morning. And let's start with the first. And it's faith. And I'm going to say it this way. Unless you have faith in Christ, you are not a Christian. That's what the mark means. Okay? Unless you have faith in Christ... You are not a Christian. Now that's not surprising to most people in the room. But what I want to do is I want to zone in on the object of faith. Okay? Say, so what do you mean? Here's what I'm saying. Being a believer and having faith has never saved anybody. Okay? You believing things and you having faith does not save you. Look at what it says. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. It's the object of faith that makes faith mean anything. Okay? It is faith in Christ. This is an evidence that you have been converted. And so you need to learn this in life as a Christian. Okay? How can you know that you are converted? That you are saved? That you are a Christian? The first pivot of your soul... 
every single time better be right here. Am I right now in this moment trusting Jesus Christ? That is the first move of the soul every single time. Or you set yourself up to hundreds, hundreds of error and turmoil of soul. Are you believing Jesus Christ right now? Right now, present tense. Okay? Let's spend some time talking about faith and what it is, what it's not. Faith is not intellectually agreeing with gospel facts about Jesus. You believe Jesus is the Son of God? So does Satan. You believe Jesus died on the cross? So does Satan. You believe Jesus rose from the dead? So does Satan. It's not you checking off facts of boxes about what you believe about Jesus Christ. It's faith in Christ. You have to get this. It is not intellectual assent. It is trust in a person. Faith in Christ. And if somebody has this, it automatically tells us that some other things have happened to that person. You need to catch this. Faith in Jesus presupposes some things. In fact, if those things haven't happened, then you will never see genuine faith in Christ. And the first is this. Someone who has present faith in Jesus, that presupposes that they have fallen under conviction of sin. That sometime in their life, God the Holy Spirit woke them up to that, that they're not good people. Okay? That they cannot stand before God on their own merits and their own goodness. They have been convinced and convicted of personal sin. Personal sin. Not just in an intellectual way. And not only have they been convicted of sin in general. They are alarmed about God's judgment towards sin. This sets the stage for faith in Christ. In other words, I'll say it this way. You cannot believe in Jesus, the Savior of sinners, unless you have been convinced that you are a sinner in need of salvation. Unless your eyes have been opened that you need saving. That you need to be delivered from God's wrath. And if you are a person that that hasn't happened to that you, your eyes have not been opened to your sins and your need for a Savior. Then I got some bad news for you this morning. Jesus did not come for you. He didn't come for people like you. You say, that sounds harsh. No, I'm, I, I'm verbatim connecting this to language of Scripture. You need to get this. Jesus didn't come for people like that. That believe that they can stand before God on their own merits. Listen to Luke chapter 5. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Catch what he's saying here. If you think you're fine, you don't even need me. And then listen to what he says in verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous. I'll say that again. Jesus said this. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This presupposes faith in Christ that you have fallen under conviction and that your eyes are wide open, that you need to be saved. Second thing that faith in Christ presupposes about you as a believer is not only did you fall under conviction of sin and not only were you alarmed about God's judgment. It tells us that at some point in your life, the message of the gospel of the crucified Christ made its way into your life. The word of the cross. And as you heard that message as a sinner convinced of sin and, and, and convinced of your need of salvation. As you heard about the atoning death of Jesus, that he's dying on his cross as a substitute, something in you begins to run for refuge to this crucified and resurrected Christ that offers salvation. This is what a Christian is. Someone who turns from every other source of salvation and flees to Jesus Christ as a saving refuge from wrath to come. This is faith in Christ. And I'll remind you of this. 
one more time as we close uh, and move to the next mark. You knowing these things is no substitute for you actually turning the corner and trusting Jesus. It is not enough for you to know that you have to believe and for you to know that Jesus died for your sins. You actually have to trust the Christ that was crucified and resurrected and who offers you salvation. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. You need to know that. Amen? You need to settle that deep down in your soul more than almost anything in the entire universe. You need to know that you can only be saved through faith in Christ, but that's not enough. You have to act on that. Listen to the rest of the verse. Having known that, he says, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. How do I know that I'm a Christian? Are you trusting Jesus? Have you done that? Have you fled to Him as your saving refuge? And really a better question is, are you doing that right now? Are you forsaking every other source of salvation and safety before God? In this millisecond, as I'm talking, is your trust in Jesus. Present tense faith in Christ. This is a mark that you have been transformed. That you are alive in Jesus Christ. Let's move to the second one. Say it like this. You are not a Christian unless you have love for all the saints. And we spend a lot of time as a local church on this particular mark as we work through the book of 1 John. And what it's saying in these verses and verses like this is not, oh, I got to love people so that I will be saved. No, you heard it wrong. Okay? Take that eraser out and scrub that from your mind. These are marks that that transformation has happened to you. It's a big difference. It's an eternal difference. Okay? Faith works itself out in the Christian life through acts of love. In fact, this is exactly what it says in Galatians chapter 5 verse 6. Faith works through love. This is how your faith in Christ manifests itself and makes itself known is acts of love to the body of Christ. And catch this. Look at this phrase. Love for all the saints. All the saints. So we're talking about something spiritual and we're talking about something supernatural. Okay? We're not talking about your natural affinity for people just like you. For people that have the same stages of life, like to do the same things as you, even in the body of Christ. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about an indiscriminate love for every single person that belongs to Jesus. Love for all the saints. That's a mark that you have been transformed. And so this is this is a, this love is a, it jumps all these boundaries that those natural affinities don't jump. Just listen to this. Love all of God's people without exception, jumping age barriers. Not just people just like you. You love all of God's saints, jumping age barriers, jumping race barriers, jumping socioeconomic barriers, jumping cultural barriers. And yes, even jumping personality barriers that you love all of God's people indiscriminately. That is evidence not that you're just a great person. It's evidence that you've been transformed and born again by the Spirit of God. Listen to how it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death into life. Because we love the brothers. That's an amazing statement. It's an amazing statement. Listen to what it says at the end of that verse. Whoever does not love abides in death. Unless this is a mark in your life. That you love God's people indiscriminately. 
you are not a Christian. This is how you can know. This is a layer of evidence. Number three. We're going to spend some time here. You are not a Christian unless you are hoping in heaven. Unless you are hoping in heaven. Now you've heard me say this before. And the reason I know that is because I got this from a sermon that I preached to you before. Okay? Biblically, hope is always future-oriented. Always. That's the difference. One of the distinguishing differences between hope and faith. Faith is a more broad, general umbrella term that can look backwards right now and forwards. You can believe something has happened, past tense. You can believe something is true right now, present tense. You can believe something will be true in the future. That's faith. It can do all those things. Hope can only look forward, future-oriented. Okay, listen to this in Romans chapter 8. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. So I want you to write this down. Okay, this is a definition for you for hope. Hope is being certain about something in the future. Say that again. Hope is being certain about something in the future and to wait for it with patience. That's what it means to hope in something. That you are concrete certain that it's coming and there's an eagerness that you are waiting for its fulfillment. That is hope. What our text says today is that every Christian, a mark of conversion, is that every Christian is hoping in, their longing is in heaven, in heaven. And so, take some of that wording out of verse 4. What it's not saying is that the hope that we have is way up there stored up for us in heaven. That's not what the verse is saying. The object of the things that we hope for is stored up for us in heaven. Every one of these marks, faith, love, and hope has an object. And the object of hope is things stored up for us in heaven. So what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who's longing for, eagerly longing for, not things on this earth, not things in this world, but things that are stored up for us in heaven. Heaven. That's what a Christian is. That's the mark of the new birth. They're not living for this world anymore. They're longing for what's coming at the appearing of Jesus. So another way to say this is that a Christian, their portion is not in this world. Their portion is not in this world. And let's back up for just a second. This is just as much of a mark that you have been converted as faith and as love. That your portion is not in this world anymore. You long for the things of eternity. Listen to a few verses here. Titus chapter 2 verse 13. This is us waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And so what are we? We don't long for the things of earth anymore. We're longing for the return of our Lord. We're certain that it's coming and we're waiting for it with patience. We're just like the Christians in, Th in uh, Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, somewhere around verse 9. They turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. It's part of it. It's part of the transformation that your longings, the things that you long for, are reset. They're reset. You long for the things in heaven now. Listen to how it's said in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. You catch that? Is that your life? Is that the disposition of the way that you think? That you're moving through this transient world and you're not living for this transient world. You are seeking the city that is to come. This is why God's word calls you 
as a Christian, a sojourner, an alien, an exile, a pilgrim in this world. This is not your home. You are headed towards eternity with Christ. This is our longing. Every Christian experiences these things without exception. Not perfectly, but it is the mark and the pattern of their life. We long for heaven. We wait for the appearing of our Lord. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read several verses here. Is this how you think of a believer? Look at verse 10. Do you see how Abraham is described in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10? He was looking forward, looking forward, looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Is that how you think about a Christian? Forward gaze, longing for what's coming at the revealing of Jesus. Look at verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 11. That verse clearly tells us that every single Christian is seeking a homeland. Seeking a homeland. Very next verse, verse 15, clearly tells us that that homeland is not in this world. And then look how it says it in verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. So I want you to, I want you to consider this, brothers and sisters. When's the last time that you thought about heaven? When's the last time that you lingered over and were reminded about what's coming to you when Jesus, your Savior, when He rips the sky wide open? Do you know that God's Word says that the entire universe is going to be regenerated? There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And we're going to be there reigning with Christ. You will be in a place where it's said that the, that the knowledge of the glory of God covers the earth like water covers the sea. Is that what you're longing for? Take me to that place. Come, Lord Jesus. I long to be with you. The best part about what's coming to us is that we are promised in God's word. Yes, it is true that we will see the face of our God. We will see his face and we will be like him. Is that what you're longing for? Is that the city that you're seeking, that you're eagerly expecting as you pass through this vapor of a life in this world? When's the last time that you thought about heaven? And about the inheritance that's coming to you. That's stored up even now. That's coming to every Christian. This is why the Bible ends with a phrase that says something like this. Even so, come Lord Jesus. That's what we're longing for. We want to see Him. We want to see our Lord. And what we see in this passage. Is that this hope in heaven. It confirms that that transformation has happened. Opposite of that is true. If the pattern and the practice of your life is earthbound and you live for the things in this world, that means that you may not have been transformed. But it also means something else. Once you move into this mark and you say, I believe that God has transformed my life. Hope in heaven does something in addition to that. It changes the way that we live in this world. Go to verse 5. And I want you to zone in on this little word in verse 5. Because. Because of. So you have this interesting wording in this passage. That we as Christians, we have love for all the saints. And then it says this. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You say, well, I see that. I'm just not sure how that goes together. Okay? So I want to explain this to you. With one stroke of the pen, the Apostle Paul, he demolishes the modern cliche that says this. Don't be so heavenly minded and somebody finish it for me. That you are of no earthly good. 
It says the exact opposite. That this mindset infatuated with heaven, with what's coming to me at the return of Christ, it actually affects how I live in this world. And so, how does this work? The joy of heaven, it breaks the world's power on us. It sets us free from everything that this world pursues and their portion in this world. We have something far better. And so we don't go after the things that they go after. We are set free from this selfish and worldly life that says, get all you can, while you can, as long as you can, however you can. We're set free from that because we're getting something better. And so we're uniquely positioned because of this joy in heaven and this inheritance that we have in Christ. We are uniquely positioned to selflessly and costly love one another in the body of Christ. I want to give you an example of how this works in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. Listen close. Says, for you have compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see that? What would cause someone to to, to live selflessly and serve the people of God, knowing that you have a better possession and an abiding one. You can deny yourself and you lose nothing. You have the inheritance. You have the riches of Christ. It changes how you live in this world. Having your portion in heaven changes how you live in this world. These are the marks of conversion. In our passage today. So I want to transition. Once that is established in somebody's life. That I am. I am made new in Christ. I have been united to Christ. I'm a holy one in Christ Jesus. Not because I'm an awesome person. Because I've been transformed. I have faith in Christ. God has given me a measure of love for all the saints. And I hope for the things in heaven. Not perfectly, but this is true. It's real in my life. God has done a work in me. Once that happens, I want to transition to this question. Who gets the credit for that work? Who gets the credit for that work that God has done in the life of a Christian? Look at our text. I want you to notice two things at the same time. And the first is this. The faith and the love and the hope in our text, they are clearly said to belong to the Colossians. I want you to see that. Take a quick read. It's theirs. Those virtues are their possession. They believed, they loved, and they hoped. You got it? It belongs to them. Then... In the very same passage of Scripture, Paul writes to them and he says, These things that belong to you, I thank God for these things. You see that? He has a perfect opportunity to thank them for what belongs to them. Their faith, their love, and their hope. And what does he do? He sets them to the side and he begins to thank and praise God for their conversion. Now I want you to think about this. What can we learn from that? What are we supposed to be taking away from those two realities? I'm going to say this. The Colossians and every Christian after them, they are responsible to believe, to love, and to hope. They are responsible to do those things. But what our passage shows us today is that at the end of the day, they're believing and our believing. They're loving and our loving. And they're hoping and our hoping. At the end of the day, they are the work of the sovereign God. Of the sovereign God. And you see this clearly that He turns from them and begins to praise 
and glorify God. Doesn't even mention them. I mean, you did a really good job in believing the gospel. You're doing a really good job in loving all the saints and great job in, in hoping in heaven. He's praising God for these things. And so what we're going to press into for a little bit this morning is we're going to press into the sovereignty of God and the salvation of sinners. God is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. Now, what do I mean when I say that? It's really important that you get this. Okay? When I say that God is sovereign in the salvation of sinners, I do not believe that God believes for us, loves for us, and hopes for us. We do those things. We're responsible to do those things. The sovereign part of it tells us that though we do those things, we are not the ultimate and decisive cause of those realities in our life. Those things were given to us. Something's at play behind the scenes, which is why He gets credit for those things in our life. Okay? God is sovereign in the salvation of man. He is the ultimate and decisive cause of our conversion. And the reason that this is important is you know you need to know in the depths of your soul that no Christian is, is saved because they made a good decision, because you figured something out, and you get a pat on the back that you made bad decisions your whole life, and then all of a sudden you made a good one. Nobody got saved like that. Nobody. This is the work of the sovereign God in our life, and the reason we need to know this is God deserves praise. For what he's done in your soul. This is not a theoretical thing. This is setting the stage for it. We thank God for these things. We praise God for his work in your life. Sovereignty of God. And the salvation of man. So I want to start with a warning. And here's the warning. I want to put us on guard. As a local church. That we would be on guard. Against any mindsets. That try to creep into our life. Quiet mindsets that would attempt to rob God of His glory in conversion. His glory in salvation in our life. I want us to be on guard for those. They're deceptive and they're subtle. And so, to put this warning out, I want you to turn to a warning that God gave His people. As He brought them into the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He gives them a warning. I'm delivering this inheritance to you, but I want you to make sure that this doesn't happen. And we need to hear this as Christians. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17. It says this, Beware, lest you say in your heart, that's that private conversation that we have with ourselves, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and my might have gotten me this wealth. That's the warning. I'm giving you this land. I'm delivering it to you as an inheritance. Here's the mindset that you need to be on guard against. That time goes down. Time passes. Time clicks along and you say, I got this wealth and I got this riches because of my power. And the might of my hand. I want, you to, I want to translate this and apply this. To a similar mindset that can come into our life that we need to be guarded against. These spiritual riches in Christ are mine because of my faith and my repentance. I am rich in Christ. I am saved because I believe and I turn away from my sins. Brother and sister, beware that that's not sneaking into your life and you are attempting to rob God of His sovereign glory and saving. Look at the very next verse in Deuteronomy 8. God responds and He says this, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. You want to boast about your wealth and the might of your hand? What about the God who gave you the power and the wealth in the first place? And the might in the first place? Application for us. Yes, we believe. Yes, we repent. Yes, we love. And yes, we hope in heaven. Guess what? God gave you those things. Don't you dare try to take credit for what God has done in your life. That's the warning that we want to have of robbing God of His glory in our life. And so I want to spend some time just unpacking 
this truth for us. I want to remind you, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to remind you of what happened to you. I want to remind you of who you were and what God did. And I want us to turn that corner after we get that reminder. I want to worship God together. I want us to magnify His sovereign grace in our life. We don't get credit for conversion. And I want to lay this out as clearly as possible. Why? Why do we not get credit for conversion? Why do we not get the pat on the back? And so these two things, it's the best way I can organize it for you. You don't get credit because of who you were. And you don't get credit because of what God did. Who you were and what God did. As I'm working through these, I want you to really labor to meditate and to linger back in your mind. If you try to see yourself here, you fight to remember these truths in your life. Who were you? Who were you? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. Waste no time. You weren't sick in need of a little help. You weren't down in need of a little boosting up. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. The Word of God puts you in a casket. And you are a dead man, a dead woman. In your trespasses and sins. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean you were physically dead. It doesn't mean that you cease to breathe air in this world. It means that you are a spiritual corpse. Unresponsive to the things of God. Every single Christian, that was true of you at one point in this world. Now some of you are Christians and you cannot even remember a time where you didn't believe the gospel. And, and, and you don't remember the realities of these things in your life. But they're still just as true for you. And some of you know very vividly that I know I was like this. I remember years that I clicked off in death and darkness. But all of us, without exception, were once dead in our trespasses and sins. And if you're here this morning and you're outside of Jesus, this is still true of you. God's Word puts you in a casket spiritually. And you need to think about this. What can a dead man do? And the crickets chirp, right? Dead men can be dead. That is the picture that God wants to give us of who we were. We were dead. And here's the warning. Do not overestimate what a dead man can do. That's the sinful lingering of the mind that wants to sneak man in and rob God of His glory. Brothers and sisters, do not overestimate what a dead man can do. Listen to Jeremiah 13 verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to do evil. You were dead. You had a spiritual, moral inability. Unresponsive to the things of God. You need to see yourself there. I want you to fight to remember yourself in that coffin. I was dead in my transgressions and sin. What this means, because we were dead, that if it was left up to us, we would not and could not have responded to the gospel unless something happened to us. Why? Because we were dead. You go try that sometime. At the next funeral that you go to. You go whisper something in somebody's ear. And guess what's not happening? They're not going to talk back to you. Why? Because they're dead. They have no pulse. They have no pulse. They are dead. And that's us. Spiritually, morally. We are unresponsive to God. I want to give you three verses. To fill out what does that mean that we were dead. Look at John chapter 3. We'll start in verse 19. It says, And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be Exposed. That verse is true for every single one of us. There was a time in your life. Listen. There was a time in your life where you loved darkness. And you hated light. That's true. You loved darkness and you hated light. 
You love rebellion against Jesus and you hated Jesus exposing sin and demanding lordship in your life. You love darkness and you hated light. So brothers and sisters, think about this. How did you jump the gap? How did you jump that gap? If you've ever heard Ryan's testimony, if you remember this church, you've heard this. Every time he shares it, he, he says that there, there was a time how God convinced him that he was not a Christian is with that verse. That people were getting saved in his life and he hated it. And God used that verse to awaken him that he was lost. You see that? Now, how do you jump the gap? How do you do that? And just, just very vividly, you ask yourself these questions. How could you possibly have turned from darkness when you loved it? You loved it. You were standing in it six feet deep and you loved it. How in the world could you turn from that? Other question. How in the world can you turn to light, the light who is Christ, when you hated it? You did, Jesus didn't come into the world and you heard the gospel and you said, that's great. That sounds great. You hated it. How did you jump that gap to where you loved it, where, where the things of Christ were beautiful to you and you received it? How did you jump the gap from loving darkness and hating light to receiving the gospel? And the only answer to that question is you were acted upon. God in sovereign power did something to you. He intervened. And if he did not, you would have never jumped the gap. You would have stayed there loving your darkness and hating everything about Jesus. Second text. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Again. Every Christian in the room, you have experienced both sides of that verse. That the gospel was folly to you, foolishness to you. Some of you for months, some of you for years, the gospel was foolishness to you. It was background noise to you. And then all of a sudden, it's the power of God in your life. The wisdom of God in your life. Same question, right? How? How did that happen? How did you jump the gap? You, do you get that big pat on the back that you got it wrong for so long and then you all of a sudden you got it right? How did you jump the gap that you were to receive something that you perceive to be foolishness as the wisdom of God and the power of God? How did that happen in your life? And the answer is the same exact answer. You were acted upon God in sovereign grace and sovereign power. He intervened and He did something in your inner man or in your inner woman. And unless He would have done that, you would have never jumped the gap. You would still hear the gospel as background noise and as foolishness instead of the power of God. Last text, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What we have here is God is calling our attention that there was a time in every one of our life, and it's still true for you if you're not in Christ, where Satan is blinding the eyes of unbelievers and they cannot see Jesus. They cannot see His glory. So think about that. How do, you, how do you overcome that? You have a spiritual enemy that is millions of times wiser and stronger than you. And he has wrapped his arms around your eyes and you cannot see Jesus. How all of a sudden do you see Jesus? Did you wrestle Him off of you? Did you wrestle His hands off of your eyes? How do you jump the gap? How do you jump the gap? And the answer is the exact same. That something happened to you. God intervened. God acted on you. In His sovereign work of salvation. He did something in your inner man. And in your inner woman. And He deserves praise for what He did. He is the Savior. He is the Savior. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind us. This was us. This is who we are. We are in the tomb six feet under. We loved darkness and we thought the gospel was foolishness. 
And on top of all that, we have Satan, God's enemy, wrapping his hands around our eyes and we can't even see Jesus. This is the biblical picture of who you were. Do you get that? Do you get that? How much need, how helpless you were unless God intervened for you? Helpless apart from Christ. Corpse, no spiritual pulls. And then here, then, then you transition, right? And we, this is where we begin to worship the but God. But God did something. God did something to us. He did not leave us in the tomb, six feet under, dead in our sins. He intervened. To the praise of the glory of His grace. He did something so that He could be praised for what He did. To the praise of, his, of the glory of His grace. What did our sovereign God do? Back to Ephesians 2. Verse 5. Verse 1. Dead in transgressions and sin. Verse 5. He made us alive. He made us alive. Raise your hand if you can resurrect yourself. You are made alive, acted upon. God intervened on your behalf. Sovereign grace. You didn't do anything to deserve it. Nothing to deserve it. He visits every Christian in that grave with resurrection power. Resurrection power. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us how He does that. Look at verse 6. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know why you're a Christian? Because God said, Let there be light, and you saw Christ. That's why you saw Him. You didn't figure anything out about Him. It was revealed to you. God turned the lights on, and you saw Jesus. Sovereign authority. That means everybody becomes a Christian just like Lazarus was raised out of the tomb. Jesus says to a dead man, He says, Lazarus, come forth. And what happens? He's raised to life. The very words of, of Christ create life in this man. God did that for you. All across this room, Candace, come forth. Ben, come forth. Sarah, come forth. Nick, come forth. And we live because that's what He said. Let light shine out of darkness. This is how every person becomes a Christian. And once you see that, is it any surprise to you while we turn around and we don't slap the self on the back and say, Good job, good to see you. We say, Praise God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. He's acted upon me with sovereign grace and power. What this also means is that every Christian conversion is a resurrection Every Christian conversion is a resurrection. And what that means is there's no such thing as a boring testimony. Amen? You got saved. I don't care if you got saved at five years old. You don't remember anything about it. If you're in Christ, you are raised from the dead. He said, live and you are alive. This is what it means to be transformed by God. So I want to encourage you. Stop talking like that. That your testimony isn't, isn't very special or not encouraging. You are resurrected from the dead. Every single one of us can find ourselves in, in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 6. This was us. God says, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. This is us, helpless, hopeless, wallowing, no hope. And He speaks the word of life, resurrection life. This is us in the, in, in the same book of Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 37. You come to a valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37. And God asked the prophet this question. Can these bones live? Dry bones, been there a long time, dead, 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 dead. And God says, can these bones live? And the prophet begins to prophesy and the breath of God begins to brood over these dead corpses. And then that very same chapter, verse 10 says, There arose from those dead bones an exceedingly great army. You know who that is? The church. That's us. 
That's how we became Christians. As God spoke that word of resurrection over us in sovereign authority. In sovereign authority. And unless God would have done that, you would have never believed. And you would never love. And you would never hope. He is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. Now, what is the proper response to that? What's the proper response to these things? Read a verse to you. Because the things I just walked through, it's really important that those things make it past your brain and into the depths of your soul that you know that you have been saved and that you didn't do anything to deserve it and God acted upon you. You have to know that. Listen to John chapter 3 verse 27. He says a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You have to know that. You didn't produce anything in your conversion. Start to finish it was given to you by God. And once that sinks in, that knowledge... That I ascribe everything to Him. He is the sovereign Savior in my life. And that puts you in the perfect position to respond with the only appropriate response. And that is praise and glory and worship and thanksgiving to God who raised me from the dead. Look at Acts 16 verse 34. It says, He rejoiced. Along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. That is the natural response of the heart set free. That our natural response to God is to thank him for what he's done. So, brothers and sisters, this is your opportunity. This is your exhortation today that you would be happy in the gospel, that your heart would be encouraged in what Christ has done in your life, and that you would turn and that you would begin to worship your God, God the Sovereign Savior, and you would thank Him for what He's done in your life. I'll give you a warning. The warning can be found in Luke 17. In that chapter, Jesus heals ten lepers. He makes them clean. And in that same chapter... Luke makes it a point to tell us that only one of the ten who were healed come back to Jesus and bow down and worship Him and give Him thanks for what He's done in His life. The other nine, nowhere to be found. That's a warning to us. God forbid that He would do this sovereign work of authority in your life and He wouldn't get the praise that He deserves from your lips. From your lips and from your heart. So I'm encouraging you, brothers and sisters, Ephesians chapter 1. You exist at the highest place, highest, 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 the ultimate reason. You exist to magnify the glory of the grace of God in, uh, that He displayed towards you in Christ. That's why, not only why you're on earth, that's why you'll be in heaven. That's why you are. It's to worship God for His grace that He has given you in Christ. And so, if you had a tattoo across your forehead, which I do not recommend, but if you did, it ought to say this, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Everything about you can be summed up in that phrase. That's why you are, is to magnify the work of Christ in your life. You are a walking miracle. You are a resurrected dead man or dead woman. You are the sovereign work of our gracious God. So brothers and sisters. I want your hearts to be encouraged. I want the joy of your salvation. To be restored. And I want us to give God the praise. That he deserves. For this powerful work. That he has done in our life. I'll close with a snapshot. Into eternity. And this is what we're going to be doing. Forever and ever and ever. Is we're going to be magnifying God's grace toward us in Christ. And forever in a million years, we're never going to have problems ascribing our salvation as belonging to Him, not to us. Listen to this in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. 
After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's our song as the church of Christ throughout endless ages. Let's pray. Lord, we are your people. And God, we thank you for your work of grace in our life. Lord, we do confess to you, God, that we are sinful, Lord, and that we will never be able to comprehend these things perfectly, God, until we're transformed at the resurrection and made like you. But Lord, we ask that you would fill us with the knowledge of Christ and the knowledge of His glory and fill us with satisfaction in the gospel. Make us a church happy in what you have done for us in Jesus. Lord, we ask you to do this in Christ's name. Amen.